and good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with <gasps> the late Patty Fink and Nola Ron. Laurent will be back with us next week. Our guest today is Dallas Deputy Mayor Pro Tem, not Deputy Mayor, Mayor Pro Tem, uh, Chad West. And uh, Chad is in his second term on Dallas City Council. Um, I didn't know this about you. You're a combat veteran. I am. I, uh, I told you I got all the dirt. Yeah, you, you did your research. Absolutely. I served. Um, that's, you know, being in the Army actually is what brought me to, to Texas. I, it put me through college in, uh, in Missouri, and then I was shipped down here to uh, Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio and did my first two years there and then went overseas and came back. And uh, I'll tell you, I absolutely hated texas my first two years i was here yeah, it was everybody, the, the, every, this is the thing nobody realized everybody does but it gets under your skin and my planned one year stay here is now in its 42nd year i think you just end up drinking too much of the water and you just get you know you just get used to it and you, you end up falling in love and uh never left it's been 22 years now it's, that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Th- did you guys hear this week about the TikToker who went viral? A woman from New York moved to Texas, and she made her observations. And my favorite was unnecessarily large pickup trucks. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have one of those. Right. Have an unnecessarily large SUV. Um, Chad created Dash for the Beads, which is a 5K and a 10K race. In a minute, I'll have him explain what, what the hell a K is. Nobody knows. He's been busy uh, doing uh, things on city council, like working on the homeless issue, curing the pandemic, uh, taking care of the power grid, and doing all those things that nobody in Austin wants to do. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the budget, which has been completely controversial this session. Um, I guess because nobody wants to spend any money. Everybody has their own priorities for how the money's spent, basically. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's pretty pretty normal that we're going to have conflict during the budget. Yeah, this um, one's been interesting. It's watch. been interesting, and with the extra money we're getting from the ARPA, the uh, Rescue Plan Act funds from federal government, uh, you know, staff certainly has even within the city. Um, are are kind of fighting back and forth on where the money's going to be used. So I think I don't envy the city manager TC having to sort of wrangle all the cats to to get us a proposed budget, which which we're voting on on Wednesday. Actually, um, it's that season. It is that season. It is. We're all gonna. Uh, we're not taking a vacation because right after that we got a lot of policy work to do. But around December, come December time frame, we'll be looking forward to taking a couple weeks off. Yeah, and um, you normally take off July after the elections. That's right, right. It is. Uh, there's no meetings in July now. Most of us still hold meet. You know, we'll hold meetings with constituents. We're in our, you know, out in the communities. Um, but that's that's usually your time to kind of gear up for budget season because budget season is like the Hunger Games. You're just in the pit <laughs> and you're going at it. So, what are some of the things that have been most controversial? One of the things I know has to do with police department and police department funding. Not that anybody in Dallas, I mean, Austin would like you to believe that Dallas wants to do away with the police department. Nobody here is doing away. Um, But funding for additional officers, funding for mental health officers, Mm -hmm. which has been a very successful program with the Dallas Police Department. Uh, it has been it has been done very successfully everywhere it's been tried. Like Austin has a mental health um, 
a police unit and um and so that those folks don't end up in jail when that's not really what they where they need to go and we call those the right care teams they're mm-hmm. uh uh, it's like you said. It's it's nationwide. This is a model that seems to be working. You know, the the department, the Dallas Police Department's original policy was, if you have a mental health related call, you have six officers plus a supervisor that shows up on the scene, and nine times out of ten, or sometimes ten times out of ten, the people that when they arrive, somebody's going to jail, and and then the question becomes, or is, dead, or well, the question becomes, is it? You know, on a mental health related call, a lot of these folks are homeless. You know, they're they're systemically in the system. Is the best thing to do with these folks to try to get them out of the, the their cycle that they're in to take them to jail and let them sit in jail at night and then wake up and go do the next thing? You know, mm-hmm. the next day the same thing happens. Or should we try to get them into mental health counseling? Should we try to get them into a home if if possible, um, and try to get them the wraparound services? And right here, it, that's the the purpose of it. Is it's it's to get have that on the ground when that first call comes in help that they may need to keep them out of the prison system or or even just to talk them down from where they are they might just be in a precarious position or or just needing to talk to somebody and now the person to talk to is there as opposed to a police officer that has no mental health training And and that's a very good point it's you know, how fair is it really that we're expecting our men and women in uniform whose job is enforcement, right, um, and prevention to, to understand the intricacies of mental health issues? And, and frankly, they can't. You well, know, they've you, had a week of training in mental health <laughs> issues. It's a whole week, you know. A lot of on-the-ground training, too, but it's still not going to supplement the care that you can get. And, and just knowing all the resources that Dallas has to offer, I mean, these mental health professionals do. They, they know what to do. They know where to take them. They know if, you know, and then the homeless issue, which you mentioned, is is another big part of this because so many of the folks that are um, these calls are made for are, are homeless. And so knowing what shelter to try to get them into, which shelters are booked, which shelters can address uh, specific mental health um, issues, you know, in different categories. Uh, these professionals can do that, and we're seeing positive results from it. Yeah, w- so. One officer I spoke to said, just on going on some of these calls with a mental health professional has taught her so much about what to do on that kind of call. Just how to talk to people. Just, uh, that she said it's helped her throughout everything she does. Well, one of the things I think has been really interesting is over time, we've loaded so much responsibility, um, some so much unnecessary responsibility on our police department. So when we talk about this whole, you know, catchphrase of defund the police, I think a lot of it is reallocation because there was a period of time in Dallas um, not all that long ago when there were, I think it was 7,500 stray dogs roaming the city. Yes. And suddenly uh-huh. we're going to blame the police because they're not doing their job to pick them up and That's get those. That's not the police's job. It's not their job. <laughs> That's not who we, these are highly trained professionals who need to be focused on their jobs. And Lord knows we have crime issues that they need to deal with. And, you know, 7,500 stray dogs, it's not a police issue. So, so money that might be allocated for them to do overtime to deal with crime and this could be moved to animal services and those dogs are properly taken care of right i mean you got i mean you hit the nail on the head on it's historically the city has been putting 
you know, the catch-all for anything is DPD. It's like, all right, we're not, we don't have a department for this. Let's let DPD handle it. And, it, and that growing sense of responsibility has just continued to add on uh, a, a change in focus for the officers when we really need them doing violent cl- crime prevention, everything all the way down to speeding prevention, which don't get me started on that. Speed racing <laughs> uh, during the pandemic, man, oh, my gosh. I have never seen so many cars. I don't know if you ever – I went on a uh, on a ride along with DPD, and we tried to catch these speed racers. And um, these guys are smart, and they were very bored during COVID, um, the early, especially the early stages of COVID. And you couldn't catch these guys. Um, any given weekend, we had thousands of speed racers and a few hundred, you know, eight hundred to a thousand officers. So we have to come up with some better. Um, Tactics for the speed race. So I'm, I'm and Crown Victorias, right? Sorry. <laughs> I, and what? And Crown Victorias. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say maybe if we put up speed limit signs. That could help. <laughs> and enforcement's a good thing, too. We're looking at, you know, I, I just mentioned that on any given weekend you're going to have more speed racers and officers so you right. can't police your way out of it right, you've right. got to think about other alternatives we're looking at in my district and other places in the city um uh, traffic calming measures to get to get cars just to to slow down you know when they're doing the donuts in the middle of the intersections um there are bumps that can be placed there that um if they hit it they're going to flip and so we're looking at doing that at some of the major um intersections we are in my neighborhoods, we're looking at lane reductions. Um, Jefferson Boulevard, we're, we're going through a, a study right now and t- bringing it down from six lanes down to possibly four and turning the two extra lanes into bike lanes. Now, there is some give and take on this. This is why you can't just do it without community in- involvement, right? Because as you cut down on the traffic on these major ar- artery roads, there's a risk that you're going to get some of the traffic into the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a little bit of that. And then the question is how much of that increased traffic can you tolerate? Um, is it tolerable for the neighborhood to try to save lives and, and provide a bike lane for Jefferson? And we're weighing through that option right now. It's no simple answer. Well, we, we're going through that right now with our street. Um, our council member, Paula Blackman, um, spoke with lots of people in our neighborhood, and I live on a, we live on a, a very busy street uh, that's a cut-through that's sort of parallel to Northwest Highway. So there's a lot of, I don't want to do a Northwest Highway, I'll just do this street. Right. And um, it's got a median and, and two lanes each way. Well, we took one lane each side as a parking lane, which is really supposed to be, I guess, a bike lane. But there's no traffic in it. And there have been some stop signs put in. Um, and it has really slowed things. But people in, our, in the streets kind of veering off that into the neighborhood are complaining. Like, there's so much traffic on my street now because people are cutting through there rather than tolerate the, 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 the stop signs. And the parking lanes. So it is a give and take. And I think we've come to a balance because it's not a very large portion of the street. It's just part of it where they were just going crazy. The the racers would. I mean, we had cars flip in the median in the middle of the night and crash into other cars that were parked on the street. And in one night, we had four accidents by all of them within an hour about between like 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. All I mean, like the whole neighborhood was out like, what, again? <laughs> you know, and, and on my ride along, we pull, we did end up pulling over a guy who was speed racing, and we, we caught him. He was from Mesquite, and the officer asked him, he's like, why are you doing this? And he, he said, I'm bored. You know, it's COVID. Wow. He wasn't able to go out and do the clubs or wherever he would normally be on a, you know, midnight. And he said he was bored, and he's from Mesquite. 
And the officers tell me that a lot of our speed racers that are coming to Dallas are coming from other cities. Um, one, because we have a no chase policy unless they have a felony, and that's to hopefully prevent accidents. So that's an internal policy that they don't chase speed racers. Um, the second reason is because Dallas is just cooler than the other cities. I mean, <laughs> when, you're, when you're doing it, no, they, they'll say this. When you're doing a Snapchat or a TikTok and you're speed racing, you want the skyline in the background. You don't want, like, a highway in Mesquite or something. I don't know. I think Mesquite is pretty darn cool. Well, I wish they would all go there, but <laughs> frankly, it's just not going to happen. And Garland and Garland. Like, all these <laughs> suburbs they could go to. No, but it's it's a problem. I think traffic calming and, and more policing is really the answer. And, um, and we've even talked about trying to find them a legal place to go where they can speed race. Um, you know, in, down in Ennis, there's that motor speedway, mm-hmm. and they'll let them go there. But that's just, it's a hike for them to go. So the question is, would you want them in Dallas? If you do have them in Dallas, you're, you're going to hear it. So what neighborhood would be willing to accept a motor speedway for that? And is that really the best use of our taxpayer dollars? So these are all Well, but you're saying it's not good use of our taxpayer dollars. But if it keeps the streets safer and it keeps people entertained because racing is something that they obviously enjoy and want to do. Right. It is a good use of our taxpayer dollars. It was well, a possible alternative to, to policing dollars as well. You know, if you can invest it in something like this, mm-hmm. it's going to curb the need for additional officers to tackle speed racers. Right. So it's, it's all a trade-off, and it's, it's why none of these decisions are easy, and it's got to it's gotta take, um, you know, discussions from community and from council members. Okay, so we settled it here. <laughs> just go back to city council on Tuesday and, or Wednesday and uh, just tell them. This is what we decided on Lambda Weekly. We yeah, need a speed racing, uh, like a motor speedway somewhere in the city. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. How about we put it in Mesquite? <laughs> <laughs> Let's volunteer them. I love it. We could move our skyline so that yeah, it could they, even be and cool. They could, you know, Give them a fake skyline. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> You've been working on homelessness ever since you came into uh, office. Um, one of the things that... Uh, you would like to do is create a thousand affordable units. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure, would love to. There, so there's two separate issues there. The thousand affordable units is is really a um, that's a that's more on on just housing uh, as opposed to tackling the the root issues of homelessness. So I'll, I'll hit homelessness first, if that's okay. Sure. Um, when the mayor had first appointed me to be chair of Housing and Homelessness Solutions Committee, this was in late 2019, uh, I didn't know anything about homelessness at all. I had done charity work in the, in the past, but never really worked with the, the homeless sector on that. And uh, you know, started looking into the industry, try, try to understand the problems of homelessness, why someone would become homeless, why they would stay homeless. I had the mistaken assumption that people who are homeless um, are represented by your average panhandler on the street, which mm-hmm. is not correct. And I had the other mistaken assumption that most of them really didn't want help, that they wanted to just kind of do their thing and be left alone by others. And both of those are wrong. Uh, you know, and there's, there's, of course, exceptions to that, but those perceptions were very wrong. And where I learned how wrong I was was um, when we had – the first time we opened an inclement weather shelter at the city and we welcomed in homeless people and we, we figured it out. Staff did a wonderful job on that. I spent three days down there talking to hundreds of people and 
and just polling them kind of, you know, in, in, unofficially. Just kind of uh, what can we do to help? Yeah, talking to them. Where did you come from? How did you get here? Mm-hmm. You know, do you want a house? Do you not want a home? Uh, you know, where have you been living? And um, nine out of 10 of them all want to get help. Most of them have some type of mental illness or substance abuse problem, uh, but they genuinely were like, we want to find a home. There's just not a place for us to go right now. Mm-hmm. I haven't had anyone kind of provide me any services or help to, to get what I need. And, um, and, and it shocked me how many people really, I felt genuinely wanted to get help. Uh, one out of 10, they were either so just sort of catatomic on something they couldn't even communicate with me or just didn't want to talk to me. And I kind of, they fit that original mold that I mm-hmm. thought that, you know, at least at this point in their life, they, they're not really not, they're just here to have a roof for the night and then they're going to go on. Um, so what we as a city have, I think, been failing in for decades is being able to actually make meaningful change in homelessness. Um, there's a lot of good-hearted people in the city. There is a lot of people have talked about wanting to do something with homelessness, but nothing's really happened that's mm-hmm. made meaningful change. We just sort of kind of kicked the ball along a little bit here and there. <coughs> for the first time ever, Dallas is now taking, um, I think, positive steps to reverse the trend of homelessness. And this came about from really the leadership of the Meadows Foundation, uh, who um, realized that the city can't do it alone. The county can't do it alone. We really need our private uh, partners and our foundations to step up and help us. They uh, brought on a consultant who fixed all the issues in Houston and uh, basically turned everything around. And what this consultant did is got the entire system of homelessness, all the shelters, all the soup kitchens, the churches, the um, the bigger entities like MDHA, working as a team together and reporting up. Because if you have a soup kitchen that is um, – not providing data, not providing you know this information, then they may have a, a person out there that no one knows about, you know, who who is not in the system yet. And they use the carrot method of saying, you know what, if you all work together in the same system, we're going to get you more dollars from HUD, which is then going to kind of sort of spiral into more and more money. Um, Houston followed that method. They more than doubled their budget from HUD in one year, and they gave the private industry, you know, our community partners, they gave them confidence that they could donate as well, leveraging private dollars. We're now doing that in Dallas. And it's, I'm hopeful in the next couple of years, um, along with the ARPA money we're putting into homelessness, we're gonna be housing thousands of homeless people. Why don't we take a break? We're talking to Dallas City, um, Dallas Mayor Pro Tem, Chad West. Why am I having trouble with that title? It's not that hard. (laughs) Dallas Mayor Pro Tem, Chad West. Um, He's our fourth gay mayor pro tem. That's a statistic. I didn't know that. Yeah. Really? Absolutely. Uh, Chris Luna, John Loza. Adam Madrano. That Madrano person. (laughs) And you? Wow. Okay. It's good company there. It is good company. And it's a bigger office. So. It is a bigger office, definitely. <laughs> you're kind of you're kind of out there solo on an island, but I'm not complaining. It's I love the big office. Yeah. Kind of miss my colleagues stumbling into my office all the time, though. Yeah, no, you don't. Uh, <laughs> we'll be what back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. Hi, this is Valetta Lil, and I listen to Lambda Weekly. I hope that you will too. And that was our friend Valetta. Yes, and um, she's going to be honored. And, in the in the fall, um, 
Yes, by Black Tie Dinner. She's, yes. She's the new Kukling winner. Along with Chris Luna. Along with Chris Luna, who was my nominee. <laughs> was he really? Yeah, he was. So. Well. Uh, they, they do seem to listen to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a past Cookling Award winner, so. Right, right. So, uh, it's a very uh, elite little group. Because uh, three that I nominated have won. Oh, three. Three. Yes. Wow. So three Cookling Award winners. Uh-huh. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, we were just saying Chris Luna, who. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, Chad just stepped out of the room for a minute, which is why I didn't know what we were talking about. Uh, Valletta did our bumper, and uh, we were just talking about Valletta and Chris Luna. Uh, are this year's Kukling winners? And it's I a fun group. It's very, it's it very exciting. I think it's they're so very well deserved. Right, we should have them on right. very soon. We were talking a little bit about uh, homelessness and affordable housing in Dallas. Uh, our guest is Chad West. He's the fourth gay mayor pro tem of the city of Dallas. That's a statistic that I bet no other city can match. I bet. Yep. And we don't get credit for it just because that. Houston place had a gay mayor. Uh, we don't. I don't know. Houston, who even talks about uh, Houston? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Four gay mayor pro tems. I was going to. We're talking during the or break. Mayors, mayors pro tem is the correct, not pro tems. Right. Right. I think you're proper right. grammar, yeah. proper Latin grammar. Um, we were just talking before the break or during the break about. Um, well, I'd just like to say, you know, when we're talking about um, people experiencing homelessness, um, there, but by the grace of God, go I. Um, the stories of people who um, were thriving and thriving families with kids who end up in homelessness. It's, it's the, the trip from stability to instability can be so fast in so many ways. It's, it's scary. Um, but, um, and so I don't, I, the people experiencing homelessness are, are um, heroes in many ways. Um, for thriving and um, and such, um, but but I was going to say, um, MDHA has its has a new CEO now, and one familiar and, and a, a champion of our community as well, Jolie Robinson, and I, I am so excited for her being in this position. Um, that's very exciting. I think there's been accolades from across the county and the nor- in North Texas because. She's so perfect for this. She's great. I'm excited. To, I got to work with her when she was with DPD, and she's just a just a wonderful person who's puts her heart into any job that she has, and she I feel like she generally cares about the community. Jolie, um, and so MDHA, in case anyone doesn't know, is Metro Dallas Homelessness Alliance, and every city that gets HUD money. Uh, for homelessness has to have a reporting entity that reports all the data up to to HUD so that can justify getting the money. And MDHA serves as our umbrella organization uh, for all of our homelessness efforts. Really, I think it's also in Collin County, too, so Collin and Dallas County. And Jolie is going to be heading that up, or she is heading that up now. And their their board that oversees, you know, the staff is headed up by Peter Brodsky, who a lot of folks know him. And I think between the two of them and, and their great staff and board, I'm really excited to see what they're they're going to do. And now that they're working hand in hand with Meadows Foundation, um, and and we're starting to see a lot of momentum, um, and especially with the dollars from ARPA that, that we're putting Explain into this. Explain ARPA money. ARPA money is federal uh, uh, rescue American Rescue Plan Act money. Uh, it was hundreds of millions of dollars that we received in the city of Dallas along with the county um, to sort of help us recover from, from COVID. 
um, as an economy. And so it's money. It's very specific in how you can use it. You can use it towards um, homelessness efforts. Uh, infrastructure efforts are limited to um, bridging the digital divide, so expansion of broadband services. Um, Things like putting in hotspots for uh, kids so they can do virtual school in South Dallas where those were broadband deserts, basically. Correct, or even installing uh, the cables under the ground to bring it to neighborhoods that didn't have it before. Um, Other infrastructure issues are uh, uh, putting in water and sewer where we don't already have it. Believe it or not, there are places in the city of Dallas where people do not have, they have well water still. They're not connected to our system. Uh, We're going to close pretty much that entire gap with the ARPA money. ARPA money can be used for economic development stimulus, so grants for small businesses that might need it for, you know, if they can justify and fit the requirements, things of that nature. And this was what about I'm, rents uh, can also help with the with with rents. And that's that's a part of it, too. in the eviction assistance programs. Yeah. And that's just keeping that going because it's getting more and more easy now to evict people. Um, yeah, and evicted right people are, are homeless, become homeless. It's yep. Exactly. <laughs> how, how is our eviction protection program working? Because you hear about these horror stories in some cities like New York had distributed something like 5% of the money that was allocated to them. Well, it's, I haven't heard the complaints from, and I don't have the percentages, but I have not heard a lot of complaints from landlords or from tenants on uh, the program in Dallas and how it's working uh, because it, it mainly goes to the landlords. Landlords apply for it and then they they keep them, the tenant stays in there and they've got to show proof that the tenant is still has a home to live in. The question will be, you know, when that money runs out, what happens then? Mm-hmm. And that's always that sort of down the road uh, day that we're not looking forward to. Well, in most cases, you're hoping people have gone back to work by now. Correct. The problem was if you were out of work for three months, how do you catch up on three months' worth of rent? Well, that's what the money is supposed to be, bridging that gap, exactly. Right, but I'm saying six months from now when the money really does start running out, hopefully people are back to work and we're in a more normal cycle. We said that six months ago and six months before that and six months before that. But, I mean, hopefully this time in six months we're more caught up I feel like majority of society is kind of ready to get back to normal too. It's if if people would just you know wear their mask, be conscientious, um, get vaccinated, get vaccinated, um, take I, their I ivermectin. Be, yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, no. If you don't want to be a, a horse dewormer, you know it's it's kind of scary stuff with no proven anything to help COVID. But ivermectin takes care of parasites, and this is a virus, so it should work. Should deworm you completely. <laughs> That's what I've heard a lot of people deworming. You know, like their their guts are like, ah, parasites are gone. Apparently, if <laughs> if you take enough of it, it also causes impotence, and that's one of the main reasons that people are not taking the vaccine because it doesn't cause impotence. But they heard on the internets that it does. Well. What? Wasn't it Trump that said just drink bleach? What yes. was that? <laughs> yeah. Inject bleach. Inject bleach into your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, one of my favorite memes out there is that the, you know, the, the, one of the big complaints is that, oh, well, it's not even FDA approved. Well, now it's been FDA approved. But you know what else hasn't been FDA approved? Tattoo ink. <laughs> you know, a lot of people 
<laughs> so I don't know what's in that, but you know, they sure get it injected been, in their skin. You know, it also hasn't been FDA approved for COVID anyway, uh, or any virus, is ivermectin. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's crazy. I think it's time for everybody to just say, let's, let's end this thing by everybody or getting vaccinated. Or do what vaccinated. I did. Get a vaccine that's not uh, FDA approved. Yeah, you were in that trial. I, I was in the AstraZeneca trial. So I have plenty of antibodies because they keep testing. But I'm not FDA approved, so I have a letter that explains that I have antibodies. <laughs> I will tell you when this, it shocked me just the, the level of resistance to getting the vaccination. You know, when, when uh, we were at, you know, a lot of my com- my community that I represent, they're they're hard to reach population, and uh, they're not tuned into what the city is doing or the county. They don't care. They just want to go to work, go home, you know, be with their family, uh, drink some beer on the weekend, and enjoy life. And when we started getting the vaccines in, we were trying to get people registered. I went out to this bazaar on Westmoreland with uh, one of my neighborhood organizers, and. Uh, half the people I spoke to didn't even know there was a vaccine. It had been out about like two months. They didn't even know there was a vaccine at all. And um, half of uh, 25% uh, didn't know how to register. They'd heard about it, but weren't really into registering. Not a single person. This was two months into when we were vaccinating sort of the older folks at that point and the disabled. I'd say like maybe four or five out of the hundred had actually registered for it. So wow. we started registration drives in District 1 and Oak mm-hmm. Cliff to try to get people registered. You know, we're still having th- trouble with it. Though. Another thing that works, though, are these pop-up events. Uh-huh. Um, I had heard about them, so I called Erin, uh, Patty's wife, who works for Teresa Daniel, our county commissioner. And I said, hey, how about a pop-up event on Cedar Springs? During Pride. During Pride. Made sense, right? Yep. We, it's the only event that has run out of vaccine. Really? Yeah, yeah wow. it was incredibly successful. Oh, that's awesome. We did, uh, Dr. Uh, Garcia, Elba Garcia is, is my commissioner in my district, and we did a couple joint events where, where we did the same thing in, mm-hmm. in our neighborhoods. And we would do it in conjunction with like a hunger busters, you know, mm-hmm. giving out food, and people would just come out and they're already getting food, and we'll have someone educating them but who's bilingual. And uh, registering them on site, so we did not run out of vaccines, though. That's so it's impressive. Well, and it was right on Cedar Springs, right near the county health department, so they just ran, got some more. Oh, that's great! So now, was this in the, before or after they'd gone to the bars? Uh, it was on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Okay, so <laughs> your guess. So catching them as they're stumbling out. <laughs> hey, whatever works. But you know, another thing that's good about those kind of events, it's on a Saturday. If you're not going to feel well after the vaccine, and you might not feel well, I mean, uh, I, I know mine. I had aches and pains and fever and nausea. I had it all, and then it just disappeared. It just disappeared. But it's on a Saturday, so Sunday, you have Sunday to rest. And by Monday, you're fine. I got very lucky. I got the Johnson and Johnson one, mm-hmm. and um, I had I was a little bit tired the next day. That's it. No symptoms. Nothing. I'm, I didn't feel anything the thing about that day. No, the thing I did about the, the AstraZeneca. Yeah, the, with the AstraZeneca, because when I reported these symptoms uh, and then the result of it, she said, "You know, we keep hearing that from people." At six fifty-six p.m. the next day, I was laying in bed and feeling achy and headache and really feeling awful seven o'clock 
Oh, my headache's gone. Oh, the aches are gone. Oh, I'm not feeling nauseous. Like that, it just stopped. It didn't fade away the way a headache normally kind of just fade. Gone. Yeah, it was amazing. very strange. Very strange. But I'm glad I got it. Definitely. Yeah. No, me too. And I, I've heard some really bad horror stories from people getting, you know, uh, the after effects. And I've heard like like yours, Patty, it's just nothing. Yep. It didn't impact you at all. It's awesome. In, fa- in fact, I woke up in the middle of the night. Well, right before bed, I took the Band-Aid off mm-hmm. my arm. And then in the middle of the night, I rolled over and my arm was really sore. And the first thing I thought it was, why did I take the Band-Aid off? <laughs> As, you know, in that groggy mental state, I'm like, yeah, because the Band-Aid prevented the pain. But it was just local okay. where the shot was given. And it was just like, oh, you know, that's my logic when I'm sound asleep. If I'd left the Band-Aid on, I wouldn't be feeling this pain. And you know something? I think I've talked more people into getting the vaccine by talking about having a reaction to it than if I just made it, oh, it was nothing. Oh, because then somebody gets it and... They'll say, oh, it really hurt. Don't get it. No, it, the, the vaccine doesn't hurt. It's, it uses the finest needle that's available. Um, no, I had a reaction to it, and I'm glad I got it. Yeah, I'm really glad. And I'm, I want to go for a booster. I'm eligible, so I want to go get it. And some people I know have already gotten theirs. So We're like, waiting wow. to hear whether they think AstraZeneca people need a booster. Oh. So, and you're, you're an AstraZeneca person. I'm an AstraZeneca person now. So, um, what are some other things that the city did during the pandemic to try to alleviate some of the pain everybody was feeling? We, uh, gosh, there's a, there's a lot that went on during that. I mean, the, the, at the beginning, it was getting people educated on that they, they need to go, you know, get a vaccine, obviously. They need to get registered. Well, we tried to get them registered first because we knew eventually we would have a vaccine. No one, it was a lot of disinterest in getting registered. But getting them registered for the vaccine was huge. And then once we had the vaccine, trying to figure out the best way to get those vaccines out. And everybody, you know, all the hospitals wanted to do them, the, the, give out the vaccinations. The county, of course, did it. Um, the city tried to do it, and we eventually we figured it out. Um, but we we did find that you know Methodist Hospital and in, in my neighborhood did a wonderful job of of facilitating a rapid um, you know, in and out under an hour kind of kind of deal, which was fantastic. Uh, over the course of the last couple of years, you know, since since COVID started, there have been different funds that have come in. You know, we call them COVID dollars, right, from the federal government, and we have constantly looked for ways to bridge a digital divide to help people you know who have to stay home uh, that was a real issue i you know i have kids and trying to of course we're privileged to have wi-fi in my house with no problems with that but it uh you know trying to figure out how to be a parent and a teacher and still work and make a living that's something we all struggled with and um, a lot of families um, it was probably one of the hardest things they, they went through. It was, certainly was for me is how do you try to keep your kids moving along, you know, in, in education, keep them from wanting to kill me and me from wanting to kill them, you know, being home together all day. And, uh, and, and then also maintain the rest of your life, keep a roof over your heads. And, and that was the hardest thing. One and the little things the city could do, like providing uh, more Wi-Fi hotspots. And, and we actually put some Wi-Fi into some parks and you know which people could access from their home if they live near it. Um, those kinds of things I, I think did help in some ways. Mm-hmm. 
you know, all those little things because you're not a teacher. I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> My kids do not want to listen to me. <laughs> and learning on Zoom is a really tough way to learn, I would think. Um, I mean, kids are used to sitting in front of the computer for hours doing video games. This isn't a video game. Did you have trouble keeping your kids in front of the computer? Uh, I mean, they would maybe stay there for five minutes. And I have toddlers. So, you know, a four-year-old and a five-year-old in front of a computer to try to learn. Distance learning was hard, uh, for sure. And so the answer is yes. What I heard from my teacher friends is, even with older kids, the hardest thing was getting the parents to comply. Um, because, you know, the, the kids sitting there drinking sugary cokes or something you know during their ls and of course they're they're going to get at spiral out of control get crazy you know that's a lot of sugar for a kid or you'll have you know a kid trying to to learn and pay attention you got parents and other kids walking around and in the room with them talking to them i mean it's it's just life that's what we were all going through you know during the early stages of covid with a four and five year old though nursery school and kindergarten or pre-k a lot of that is social interaction, and they're learning to get along with other kids. It's not necessarily book learning that they're doing. It is. It's learning just how to, uh, you know, not push a kid if you want something. It's it's the communication. So, our classes were very short. It would be you know fifteen twenty minutes here and there, and then it was really up to the parents to continue the education with reading and, and other things. And mm. it was it was tough. It was a tough couple of months, and, and I was fortunate the kids were able to get back in. We, we got some procedures in, in our pre-K, and that, that I was very, very impressed with the Kessler School for putting those in. Huh. So I had a couple months at home with them, and, uh, and um, they uh, I think we regressed about six months <laughs> in learning when they were with me. You were ready to put them up for sale. <laughs> we were out doing a lot of stuff outside. Let's put it that way. So uh-huh. we, we, we learned how to ride bikes a little bit and swim a little better during that time. But the reading, the patience, all that kind of stuff went downhill. Uh, we're talking to Dallas Mayor Pro Tem. See, I got it right that time. Chad West. Good job. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And you would think I've never spoken to a Mayor Pro Tem before. Uh, but. Uh, uh, we'll be back with more with Chad right after this break. Hi, I'm Nell Gaither, and I listen to Lambda Weekly on KNON 89.3. And we're talking to Mayor Pro Tem Chad West, uh, just about city stuff. Uh, the freeze. PTSD. Uh, what, you want to bring that back? We can. We could talk about. We could talk about that time. Man, what that a mess was rough. You, what a mess your city was. <laughs> It sure was. It hit us all by surprise. I mean, who knew that we, we didn't have a grid statewide that g- could support us in that kind of weather? And still you know? don't. And we still don't. Thanks to um, those in power in Austin. It, it They're hit. not doing anything uh, about okay, it. Okay, so here's what pissed me off, and I think it's a valid complaint. Electricity across the street on Maple Avenue was on because that's the Parkland grid. It had to be on. No one's complaining that power was prioritized for a hospital obviously our side of the street went on and off 11 times during that week however directly across the street from me is a new parkland parking garage that was not completely built however it was fully lit the entire time (laughs) you know the first call i got the morning that this happened uh my phone started blowing up around four in the morning and 
it was calls with people asking why downtown was lit up like Vegas and mm-hmm. we didn't have power in Oak Cliff. And I spent one yeah. night in my office because my office building, six story office building where there was a population of one, um, had electricity in the design district. I guess I should complain about that one to my councilman Omar. Yes. Yes, you should. I, I should. And I, actually, I have. Um, but our office building, where there was one person, had electricity. But between Maple Avenue and Lemon Avenue, there was no electricity. However, for some reason, just north of there, Highland Park, had full electricity the full time. Coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it was It was brutal. My uh, my sister lived down uh, lives down on the the Texas coast, about two miles from the Gulf, on a river, and um, they she lost electricity and it got so. Co- I mean, her cat like they were. Thank God she had like a gas um, fireplace, um, but the cat was like cuddled up too because they were by the like the third day it was just. It, you know, because it was it was cold during the day, and it was and then it freeze even more during the night, and it just kept getting colder and colder. And if you have nothing to combat that, everything is frozen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All her pipes froze. Her well water was pipes were broken, and yeah, I mean that was just brutal. And and Aaron and I have like guilt about it because we had power throughout the entire week, but so many did not, and I don't know why we did. I don't know. It's just the grid. It's all based on no, the, well, no, the grid. She lives in one of those wealthy areas that didn't. Oh, are you oh no, <laughs> no, 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 no. But I think we're near. Um, we're near Northeast Station. So police department. Mm. So that's probably what it was. I mean, like uh, fire departments, police departments, uh, hospitals. Right. They're generally, you know, they stayed on the whole time. We were out for three days straight at my house. I mean, it would come on for well, not three days straight. Yeah. Three days gay. Oh, three, three days, days gay. gay. Well, yeah. I don't know. The gays aren't claiming the ice storm, so three days straight. Uh, we uh, no, it, it got so bad. Um, I mean, we we had to leave, and part of it was, um, you know, I had to be on my phone too to be able to communicate with the city. And I, I mean, I have residents that were they were in really bad scenarios, and we were trying to get water to them and food and um, get them to get transport them up to the convention center where we had power and heat and everything. Mm-hmm and food and beds and I had to have phone access so we were very fortunate we, went to, we were able to get into a hotel and end up staying there for, for um, the rest of it because my power would come on and off and on and off and then y'all, y'all know I'm in the car wash business and uh, our car washes were without power and that's that's a big problem for us so thinking about residents is one thing but also all the businesses that were impacted mm-hmm. uh, car washes are just not insulated and they're full of piping and and a million dollars in equipment um and it's you know we if if i had not gone down there in the snow and ice to light up propane burners once every eight hours uh, we would have had catastrophic damage in our car Oh, for sure i was going down there you know 11 o'clock at night was my last shift uh to to do that in between everything else going on you know with the city Mm. it was a wild time It, it felt like Something like apocalyptic, you know, almost just living in Dallas with not being able to do anything. That was the hardest thing for me as an elected official is feeling like I didn't have any any control over it because Mm -hmm. I could call my contact at Encore, but she had would then have to call her contact at ERCOT to get any information. And 
she couldn't get info, so I couldn't get info, and I couldn't give it to my constituents. And the city just had very limited ability to get much done. We could offer basic life-saving services at the convention center. That was it. Right. That's why we in Texas we call it this, you know, Snowvid nineteen, because <laughs> it was it was horrible. And imagine that, like it's like it's never going to happen again. That's that's why I'm so pissed off that the legislature hasn't done anything because it will happen again, and it will happen again, and it will happen again. And people died. Seven hundred people died in Texas mm-hmm. the, the that week because you specifically know, the, because of the, the lack of electricity their plan was for a rolling blackout now have you heard which would have been okay we would have understood four hours no power uh place where we were living uh it, it was a solid cement building it would have held its heat for a few hours and it did but that four hours went to 11 hours the first time and it was absolutely freezing. When I got to my office, the temperature was 57 degrees, and it felt warm. Wow. So I know it was like in the 40s in our apartment. Well, a lot of us in Oak Cliff are in 1920s and 30s mm-hmm. and 40s houses with very little insulation. You know, if you haven't renovated it, you got single-pane windows. Mm-hmm. And those houses got cold super fast. Real quickly. Erin's yeah. texting me. She says, in all caps, generator for the win. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I gave her a generator for her birthday because that's what she wanted like a couple of years ago. That's, you know, I was going to get her an Apple Watch and she said, no, I don't really want that. Would you give me a generator? <laughs> that's a very practical, <laughs> smart gift. Uh, you, you were polite about it. It was a lesbian <laughs> gift. <laughs> well, the other cool thing during, during all of that was, you know, Erin's from New Orleans and um, she had um, ready, as always, for anything apocalyptic... <laughs> A giant bladder that you can buy on Amazon. A what? Fill up the, it's a big plastic bladder you put in the tub. It fits the tub. Uh-huh. And you let it just drip. We let it just literally just drip like you would keep a pipe open uh-huh. when it's freezing. And it filled it up. Um, right, I don't get it. A, so you have, you have a water source. Oh, it's a now, water source. Okay. Yeah, like you have stored water. It's it's a bathtub literally full of water in a bladder that you could then dispense in an organized See, way. Shed. She's explaining in lesbian terms again. <laughs> yeah, hey, you gotta like, I gotta break that down, please. Right, right. Anyway, it was it was well worth it because right. it's like. Anyway, so the Dallas City Council has fixed the power grid here in the city. Anyway, that won't happen again. Um, <laughs> one of the things that you've been working on, Chad, is uh, bringing arts to uh, DISD students. Um, what are some of the things that you've done? And by arts, do you mean football? Uh, we're no, we're talking about the gay arts. Oh, okay. uh, so we're no, we're you know working with our uh, DISD trustees now. The president of the board, uh, Ben Mackey, uh, and then some of the other trustees, and the, this is really city and and DISD together is a cultural arts pass for for DISD kids to be able to go to you know cultural facilities um, for free, and so um, you know that that's something that's been going on for a while. Uh, one of the things we're we're doing that I'm very excited about in District One is we have three cultural arts districts in the city, which which means it's beneficial to be a statewide cultural arts district because you get state money to help generate more tourism. The design, uh, not design district, uh, the arts district has one, Deep Ellum has one, and now the Fair Park area is going to be getting one. And we're working on getting one for Oak Cliff because if you think about Oak Cliff, we have the Kessler Theater, we have all these little artist boutiques, we've mm-hmm. got uh, the Texas uh, Theater, even. The Texas Theater, um, Oak Cliff Cultural Center. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's a million more. And uh, it's, we have so many theaters there and a lot of mom-and-pop ones 
um, facilities that we have the geographic boundary and it's close enough together, we could benefit from that as well. So we're trying to push that out now uh, through, um, uh, through the states we can qualify. So I'm very excited about that. That's very cool. Um, and one of the things that you have on your website is that, uh, or on the city website, is that you want to reimagine the North Oak Cliff Library. Okay, so when I first moved to Oak Cliff in 1981 or two, something like that, that library was new. That's that was my library here in Dallas. So what are you doing to to my library? So you have old memories from that library. Yes. Um, well, it's there is interest in neighbors, and we did a survey that had over 900 people reply to it, and it's and still growing, and. Everyone loves a library, so mm-hmm. first of all, there's no interest in getting rid of books there. But there is an interest in making it as a facility a little bit more um, in keeping with what's happening around it. That's becoming a very walkable area from Bishop Arts to Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Both of those areas are super walkable right now. And there's about a four-block gap where you've got parking lots and things that don't make as much sense if you're trying to build a walkable area. Um, so neighbors have weighed in, and they're interested in rethinking the building itself to recapture uh basically we use the parking garage that's being built now by michael nazarian the developer down there and then recapturing all that space out front of the library for something else and it could be for open space i mean Mm -hmm. having little kids that's the one thing in bishop arts you can get lots of good food treats you can get them up on a sugar high but then they don't have anywhere to run it off down there there's no park there's no like little um you know community gathering area and same with jefferson there's just there's just nothing right there um, so open space was the number one thing people were asking for, uh, a place to to showcase art, art by artists um, was was asked, speaking of arts, um, more meeting space for the community. Um, and then, of course, classes and other things that we already already doing in the libraries. But uh, there is a, a RFP that's out right now, request for proposals from the city for a builder to come in build something new for us that we would then do a long-term lease back on that library and maybe make it some beautiful new structure that we haven't even thought about before Hmm. you know something that's more modern but still has all the old great elements of the library okay we'll allow that one to to go by you'll have to come check it out wait wait till you see the design and i actually asked for you to weigh in too i would love it if you'd sure once the design's proposed like tell us what you like and don't like sure We'll Me give my now. opinion. Huh. Yeah. Imagine. Well, well, now with hot spots in the parks, people can take their Kindles down and read books and mm-hmm. enjoy the green space and the open space. The other thing you can do is go to the library and take out an actual book. And there you go. And I love the tradition. I love the feel of the paper. I yeah. do, too. You know? Yeah, I do, too. I'm a fiction reader. I like fiction, like adventure and then sci-fi stuff. And uh, I just have to have the paper. I'm old school like that. <laughs> yeah, I am too. I am too. I, I get too many PDFs of books uh, from authors propose- that want to come on the show. Oh, really? So, yeah. You have to read them on a PDF? Yeah. yeah. That's not fun. Yeah. No, well, a lot no. of them are, are, they're not even really in paper yet. They're not available as papers because we get them ahead of time. Yeah. So, um, you created Dash for the Beads. Yes. And like I said then. at the beginning of the show, what's a K? <laughs> it's a 5K and a 10K race. Uh, it's just a measure of distance kilometer. And so a 5K is, it translates to about 3.1 miles. And a 10K is 6.2 miles. Basically. Well, why don't you just do a three-mile race and a six-mile race? Just nobody does it that way. I don't know. I do. We're one of three countries in the world that are not on the metric system. Yeah, and your point That's is... thanks to Ronald Reagan. And your he, point is... 
I'm, so we do it right, and 180 some odd other countries don't. Whatever you need to believe, David. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, yeah, the dash is a. Uh, it started. It's, a, it's been. It's going in its 13th year. Uh, it's a Mardi Gras race, so it always takes place in February or March, depending on when Mardi Gras falls. Mm-hmm. It's always the Saturday before Fat Tuesday. So it's um, and it raises money for local schools. Uh, we it's uh, the the schools can apply for grants. It's usually groups within the, within schools, and the, it's got to be health, fitness, wellness, um, or nutrition related. And so we support several you know PT, PTOs like football teams, uh, cheerleading groups, uh, running teams. I mean, whoever applies, if it's if they need money for uniforms or something, um, the Dash will generally look at it and try to go with it. Um, it's I started it, of course, with a, one of my friends who's another community member, uh, but about five years in, turned it over to another group who's just taken it and run with it and made it ten times better. Literally. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's hard to run with a lot of beads around your neck, though. You know, a lot of our people walk because it's also in Oak Cliff, and there's so many hills that it's just it's a hard route. It's a very hard route to run. Even though it's a party race, it's a very difficult route. And people along the route, there's sometimes are giving out adult beverages, you know, in small quantities or large quantities. And so you have that thing going, going on. You've got the beads. So about half the people don't even run it. They walk it. <laughs> They walk it. it I would just give the, the money. money. I would just give the money and go and watch. You just come out and hang out in the tent. It's fun. There's a DJ in there. Yeah, I didn't it, realize it was a hilly route. I've only been at the finish line taking pictures. So It is. So you've been to probably Kid Springs Park one, right? Because it's been there for years and years. Mm-hmm. We started it in Bishop Arts, in Bishop Arts the first right. three years. We had 100 runners the first two years there, for really the first three years. Because our first year, speaking of ice storms, we had an ice storm. Mm-hmm. Second year, we had torrential rain that was going sideways and blew our tents <laughs> down Bishop Avenue. And the third year was like a combination of both. And it was just awful. And then finally, in our fourth year, we had sunny weather. And we had like 2,000 people show up. And we didn't know what to do with all these people. Mm-hmm. But it was we had moved it to uh, Kid Springs Park by then. Are they, they like local from the neighborhood or do they come from far about away? About half and half. We get, uh, neighborhood people all come out who like to run. And then... Uh, and we pull in runners from all over the city, and it really from crazy places like even like southern Oklahoma. Wow. Okay, yeah. so That's funny amazing. story about one of the first uh, uh, races was your sponsors. And it was the same year that um, the dog parade in, in, uh, Oak, uh, in Turtle Creek Park was having this gay-straight argument. And they were going to do the dog show and costume show uh, on a separate date so that the gays and the straights didn't have to do the same what? Easter in the park. That's crazy. I so, know. It's outrageous. <laughs> so I was talking to one of the organizers of that whole weekend, and I said to her, you know, it's funny because I was just looking at your um, sponsors, and your sponsors are Hunkies, and what's the Catholic Church on uh, Jefferson? On Jefferson? Not on Jefferson. On Oakland? Yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, in Oak Cliff. Kessler Park UMC? Kessler? No, 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 Catholic Church. Oh, Catholic. Well, anyway, it was yeah. one of the Catholic churches that was a sponsor along with Hunkies. And I said, and she said, oh, yeah, well, this is Oak Cliff. We don't care about those things. No, totally. Right. No. Everyone's laid back of where I'm at. <laughs> right. Chad, we are out of time. Um, do we have our music? We do have our music somewhere. Um, 
You'll just have Jeremy to hum is, it. You might I will have just sing. have to hum it. Our guest next week is Tamika Perry. She's the new CEO of Dallas Hope Charities. And, um, is it not over there? Oh, it's here. No. Community radio, folks. Community radio. And uh, Jeremy's just learning the board. When you do your own programming, it's not as slick as just another tape rolling. And it's not even tape, digital um, rolling. So we, you know, this is our craft. It's fun to see the sausage <laughs> getting made in here. <laughs> don't, don't run chaos. with that joke either, no. <laughs> just, just controlled chaos for all of us here at uh, um, um, KNON, Lambda Weekly. Have a good week. <laughs>